we acknowledge the original owners of the land on which we podcast, whose stories were told for thousands of years. Today, we are recording in Mianjin. We pay our respects to elders past and present who may be listening. Sovereignty was never ceded. A quick note before we get started that there may be some swearing in today's podcast. If you don't like swearing or usually listen with children in the car, you have been warned. You're listening to What in the NDIS Now, a podcast where I, Hannah Redford, and my friend Sam Rosenbaum interview participants and providers about all things NDIS. Huzzah! We would like to thank the team at Kuramara for letting us use their office space today for today's recording. Guys, gals, and non-binary pals, welcome to another episode of What in the NDIS Now. Hi, Sam. How are you going? Yeah, going well, Hannah. Yourself? Um, good. So we have Patreon and that means you can pay just $5 a month to sponsor the show to keep being produced. And then as a reward for that, you get to ask us a question. So our question today, Sam, is how can a provider respond to a complaint in the most professional way? Ooh, good question. So firstly, to actually respond and acknowledge the complaint is the first and foremost starting point because there can be lots of different reasons why a complaint would be made to a provider, whether it be around a staff member, continuity of service, there could be some other issues going on that the participant has to wants to raise. And as part of the quality and safeguards uh, and the practice standards, it's a requirement for registered providers and also re- non-registered providers should take this seriously and also shouldn't take it personally because it's not a personal attack. It's the participant expressing their frustrations, their views to try and help get the service that they need. And this is part of continual improvement. So first of all is to acknowledge and respect the fact that that person has a complaint. So you might not feel that it's valid, but your feelings in this matter aren't valid. You need to validate what they're, the participant's saying, even if it may not be an actual situation. Look, there are probably some complaints that you're never going to get a positive resolution for. Sometimes we get complaints where what a participant is asking is well and truly outside of scope of what we can do. And that's okay too. That participant has a right to feel frustrated. But in that, resp- in that complaint, you'll go, you, would, you would acknowledge that, look, we understand that you're feeling this way, but it's then important to explain to that participant why you can't meet, that, meet their expectations or explain what your services does and maybe refer to a different service or provide or go back to your support coordinator or go back to the family supports to see what can be done. Responding to a complaint in a negative or dismissing a complaint does not make anyone feel good it does not put you in a good position. And recently I've had seen some very interesting takes on how to respond to a complaint. A, I've seen recently a complaint made against about a SIL provider where they had some very valid, valid concerns around some service delivery issues, 
and potential areas of going into abuse of a participant. A third party or an external party made that complaint to that service provider and that service provider's response was pretty much along the lines of how dare you, why are you, and how about you go get registered. Now, there's a lot more context around that, which I'm not going to go into detail on the podcast, but it gives you an example of what not to do. So to sum it up, respond with a complaint, investigate the complaint so you can understand all the sides. So also I'll just add in here, one thing you can do is initially when you get the complaint is acknowledge, send a quick email back, say, we've got the complaint, we are going to investigate and we will get back to you. When you then actually address the complaint and get back to them, put it on letterhead. Mm-hmm. And put it in a document and make sure that the whole letter is in one font. (laughs) I cannot stress this enough, people, (laughs) because it's really, really annoying to read when there's three or four different fonts as you go down the letter and it looks unprofessional. So you attach that to the second email that says, hey, participant, we've now done our investigation. Please find our response attached to this email. Yeah. And you can even have a conversation with the participant to understand more. A lot of the times these complaints can be solved really easily and really quickly and doesn't become a big deal. But sometimes they are and sometimes you need to take a little bit more time to consider all the aspects involved and then make sure that you relay that to the participant and that they have a right to be involved in this. You're not just telling them that you've read the complaint and you're acknowledging it and here's the response. Participants need to be involved in this process. The, the person that was making the complaint needs to be involved in the process. And then once, if they're happy with that resolution, document that down. If they're not, also document that down. At the end of the day, that, that's the process that needs to happen. There might not be a positive outcome or an outcome that the participant is ultimately happy with and that's also okay too. Then it's their position to be able to go, okay, I, I hear that, but they might decide to leave your organisation and that's okay too. But you might, they will, on the other hand, if they're happy with their response, they'll stay. So it's a way to ensure that you're not only making sure that your ha- participants are happy and getting the services that they need, but then you can understand more how to help that participant. And then lastly, last point is to make sure you document, 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 document everything. Your conversations, make sure you put it on your complaints register, make sure you've got your forms filled in, signed off and the date that it was started and the date that you completed it and the outcome of that. And that's kind of your complaints or how you should respond to a complaint in a professional manner. Thanks, Sam. Hey, Sam, how are you going? Hi, Hannah. Happy New Year. Yeah, I'm really excited for today. We have Anna Crump. Welcome to the podcast, Anna. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So our first question is, where did you grow up? Um, I grew up in uh, Toowoomba, actually. Um, I lived there until I was 21, which is a long time ago now. I went to a school called Concordia. Um, I lived up there with both my parents and my two brothers, um, one of which is still there and the other one lives in Townsville. Um, Moved to Brisbane with an (laughs) ex-partner of mine um, when I was 21. So, yeah, and I've been here ever since. Oh, fabulous. 
And what got you into the disability sector? Um, funnily enough, I came from uh, working in a different uh, in a government um, a government organisation called the Australian Maritime Safety Authority, which is obviously not disability related at all. Um, I was there for about nine years before I was made redundant, um, and had a bit of a I don't know how to explain it. Like a oh, what do I want to do with my life? I love people. I love helping. You know, one of my things that I always say and I always try and do is always stay close to people who feel like sunshine. And I just felt like the disability sector had a lot of those people, people that were caring and people that really wanted to make a difference. So a friend of mine actually contacted me and she said, hey, I work for these people. We're looking for guardians. Come and apply. So I did. And yeah, the rest is history. I sort of started uh, working at OPG and stayed there for a long time. So what do you do now? Um, so currently I am the business development and compliance manager for uh, Blue Iris Support Services. Um, we are a psychosocial disability support provider. Our head office is in Toowoomba, but we have offices in Ipswich and Morayfield as well. So my role is making connections, um, chatting to people, really finding what makes people tick in the sector and how we can really make a difference. Um, I also do compliance, so I have experience working in restricted restrictive practices space from my previous roles. So I do proto reporting, incident reporting um, and all that sort of stuff for our participants as well. Oh, fantastic. What a varied role. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty cool. It's pretty full on, but it's great. I love it. Yeah. So, interesting transition from maritime into the disability yeah, space, especially very... just going into OPG too. Yeah. Uh, yep. For those yep. at home listening, OPG stands for the Office of the Public Guardian, and they play a very specific role within people's lives in certain situations. Um, and do you want to sort of run us through what that sort of looks like and what the kind of core fundamentals of the Guardian are? Yeah, so the Guardian, uh, the Public Guardian is a substitute decision maker. Um, they are appointed by the Queensland Civil and Administrative Tribunal to make decisions around specific areas of someone's life when they've lost capacity to make those decisions themselves and when there is no one else willing or available or appropriate to make decisions on their behalf. Yeah, so that's typically like if there's no other family member, like a sister, brother, mum, dad, auntie. Close friend. Yeah. yeah, close yeah. friend. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Pretty on anyone with a close and continuing relationship that's appropriate to make decisions. So that and that includes pretty much pretty much anyone, really. Let's start from the beginning. How does someone apply to get a guardian? So I think the most important thing for people to understand is that guardians can only be appointed for someone once they've lost capacity. So and I guess one of the other things that people may not understand is that you can actually appoint under your an enduring power of attorney, the public guardian, for when you have capacity, for when you lose capacity. So once that capacity assessment has been completed and the, the medical professionals determined that you've lost capacity, you can appoint the public guardian yourself under an enduring power of attorney to be a guardian for you once, if you don't have anyone else, which some people do. The, the process is, is that anyone can make an application to QCAT. Um, so you make an application, there's forms that you fill out, you go onto the website, you download a form, fill it out, you send it into QCAT with medical evidence to support that the person has lost capacity. One of the most important things for me, I think, is to ensure that if you are applying for a guardian to be appointed for someone, 
that you're actually having that conversation with the person that you're applying on behalf of. Um, a lot of times applications are made to QCAT and the adult hasn't even been informed mm. that an application is going in for someone to essentially take away their decision-making right. It's also important to note, I guess, that if just because someone's not making decisions that you would deem appropriate for yourself doesn't mean they don't have capacity to make decisions. So, for example, if someone chooses to be homeless, and obviously there are some people who do choose to be homeless, some who don't, they're in that situation, it's important to note that just because someone's not making the same decisions that you would for your life, that they lack capacity. The process is you apply to QCAT to have a guardian appointed. On that form, it'll ask you who you think should be the guardian. So you can you can ask for, if you're a family member, you can ask for that person to be yourself. You can ask it to be the public guardian or you can ask it to be anyone, really. It's up to QCAT to determine the appropriateness of a guardian. From that, um, depending on the situation, there's two different two different forms. There's an interim an interim application if you see that the person is at significant risk and generally those uh, applications are heard within 72 hours and generally from that an interim order which is a three-month order will be created and that really allows for the people that are appointed to make really important decisions quickly. So, for example, if someone is homeless or they need supports or they need to go into an aged care setting or whatever because they're, they're at risk in the community, generally those interim orders will be, will be ones that are created by QCAT for decisions to be made straight away. QCAT will, will schedule a hearing. Then it's important that the adult is made aware that there's a hearing and that they can appear if they wish to. They don't have to. From that, the, the generally what happens um, with interim orders is they, they, they won't have a hearing sometimes because it's such a short order and things are really urgent. And this They'll can also be appoint... when you've got medical issues going on. If someone's had a, had a car accident and aren't able to communicate that and they don't have a next yeah. of kin or one of those sort of circumstances, Absolutely. the doctor then can apply for that sort of specific as well. Yeah, that's right. But there is also a section of the Powers of Attorney Act, which is Section 63, which says that the public guardian can make decisions for adults with impaired capacity without a formal appointment as a last resort. So that that's sort of a least restrictive framework around, hey, if, if, for example, I went and had a car accident and they didn't know who I was, I had no ID on me, but they were really urgent that that weren't an emergent situation because if, if it's an emergent situation, the hospital can just do whatever they need to do in order to save the person's life. There's no consent required. They just do it. But if I was in a coma, for example, no one knew who I was, but I needed a leg amputation or something drastic like that, that wasn't an emergency, but they didn't know who I was. They could call the public guardian and say, this is the situation. We are not aware of any next of kin or family members that can make this decision. Public guardian as a statutory health attorney of last resort can make medical decisions for someone without being formally appointed. And that's under, um, like I said, Section 63 of the Powers of Attorney Act, which is there is a hierarchy of people who can make healthcare decisions without a formal appointment. Yeah. So this is getting into some very technical legislation. From a high level, there are some very... There are principles that are set in place for to direct both the tribunal in making this decision mm. and then directing the, the guardian themselves in when they make a decision on behalf of that adult. Some of those principles, or you mentioned uh, least restrictive, mm -hmm. or that part mm -hmm. of least restrictive. Can you, do you want to explain what that, that actually means from a practicality point of view and then some of the other principles that guardians, uh, the foundational principles that guardians need to work with? 
Yeah, so the Guardi- the Guardians um, all work under a, a human rights framework, which is um, under the Human Rights Act, the Queensland Human Rights Act, but they also uh, work underneath what's called the general principles. So any decisions that they make, they must apply the general principles and the Human Rights Act to all of the decisions to ensure that the adult is able to provide a view on the decisions that they're making if they can. Some, some Obviously, some adults can't provide a view, but they're the two, the two foundations that the OPG work under are the General Principles and the Human Rights Act, and also the Mental Health Act if there is um, mental health concerns happening there as well. Sorry, did that answer your question? Yeah, yeah? Okay. yeah that was really good. Thanks, Anna. Because there's, like, I used to be a guardian as well myself, so I've got a little bit more. This is why I can ask some of these questions. Yeah, but uh, yeah, I'm just sort yeah. of wanting to yeah. explain to some of the, the listeners at home uh, what sort of how the sort of current framework works, yep. what that sort of role and the nitty gritty kind yeah. of looks like. Because it can be really beneficial for some people. But then at the same time, we've been recently hearing the DR, the Disability Royal Commission has mm. come out recently and the whole Guardian framework has been a big target of that, which yep. the, we know quite a bit that there is a big overhaul needed. There's a lot of stuff that's especially in the human rights sector and mm. the change recommendations and changes towards the Human Rights Act and yeah. different foundations, which comes in to a, a big point to make sure that we support people in the way that they need, not necessarily what a, a piece of paper tells somebody that they have to do. That's absolutely correct, yeah. So, and that goes back to being least restrictive. So generally QCAT will only appoint the public guardian for the areas of decisions that are actually needed at that time. So, for example, um, if someone's in safe and secure accommodation and they go back to QCAT for a review of a guardian... It's up to um, everyone that's that's taking part in that hearing to say, hey, this person is in safe and secure accommodation, doesn't look like there's going to be an accommodation decision over the, required over the next 12 months. Can we please seek a revocation for accommodation? That gives that right back to the adult. If they, just, if they can make a decision around wanting to move or whatever, they can do that. And also, you know, if there's no need for an accommodation appointment, there shouldn't be an accommodation appointment, yeah. um, you know, and that, that is being least restrictive around the areas that, that are having control, I guess, over someone's life. Mm. So you mentioned accommodation being one of those areas. So there's a couple other areas that guardians get, a, get specifically pointed to in terms of what they the scope of they can and can't make decisions on. Yeah. So accommodation is yeah. a big one, but there's yeah. a couple of others. Do you want to run through them? Yeah. So um, so generally the three that people that the OPG will be appointed for are accommodation service provision in relation to the NDIS and healthcare. There are other areas of appointment that they can be appointed for, such as restrictive practices general or respite. There Sometimes it's all personal matters, although recently going back to least restrictive, plenary appointments are not seen as being least restrictive to just be like all personal matters. I have seen orders previously where um, the public guardian was appointed for things like day-to-day matters, diet and dress, which I haven't seen, I hadn't seen for a very long time. I think because, you know, there was a lot of education that was done between QCAT and a lot of feedback that was given between PTQ, so the public trustee, the Office of the Public Guardian and QCAT around limiting someone's rights, I guess, to make decisions around what they're eating and what they're wearing. Like no one needs to make decisions mm. about that sort of stuff. 
So generally, accommodation service provision, healthcare, restrictive practices are, are generally the ones that are seen. Although there has been some crazy, crazy areas of appointment that I have seen over the time that I was there. But yeah, generally they're the, they're the three that they appoint, appoint a guardian for. Mm. Yeah. And I have seen a lot where it is just NDIS service provision, mm. which is that least restrictive thing where they might be able to make decisions for their health care or their accommodation so they don't need the guardian to be able to make those decisions. So there's once you've seen QCAT and they the member makes a decision, they hand down their decision that specifically says you only have powers to make decisions over these specific things. Mm, mm. Can support coordinators request to see that? To see the order? Yes. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. If you are the support coordinator for a client and the public guardian has made a decision for you to be that support coordinator, you can absolutely receive a copy of the order that stipulates the areas of appointment. Those orders are generally shared with the NDIS, they're shared with support coordinators or SIL providers. There's there's really no reason that those QCAT orders can't be shared. First and foremost, though, the adult should be consulted. Hey, are you happy if I provide a copy of the QCAT order to your support coordinator? Having those conversations is really important because they need to be included. It's their life, you know. So, yeah, it's really important to have and to build that rapport as well and for the for the the client to not just be like well my guardian doesn't care they're not they don't ask me what I want they just do whatever they want yeah well we're talking about sort of least restrictive than that pathway and then moving into how when once you, the order has been determined mm-hmm. and set into place and or the the guardian's been appointed there and then you're the the actual guard, oh, the officer um, has been the put delegate, pla- the delegate, the sorry, delegate, yeah. um, has been put in place. Oh, that was just an NDIS word for a second. <laughs> um, getting my head confused. But yeah, once they've been put into place, mm-hmm. then there's a bit of a, a weird thing that guardians or, or, or officer of the public guardian is not a case manager. Correct. But is also then meant to understand what's happening in a person's life, what's happening within the service provision, what that mm. the, the, the person actually wants, mm. what that healthcare needs. Uh, and there sometimes can be a bit of a disparity between the what the individual is doing on a day-to-day versus what the, the guardian is aware of or mm. what the guardian's actually been informed of, mm. such as if there's a healthcare order in there. Um, doctor shopping can be still a thing. And it's very, much very so. hard for, or there's not a lot that you can do to mm. go, no, you need to stick with this doctor because I can go to off, off to any doctor. That doctor's going to sign me up, ask me what I want, mm. uh, let me in the door, bill mm. Medicare, and no one else knows anything. There's, yeah. there's, it's not that sort of check. So it can be quite a, a hard thing to manage as well from a guardian point of view. It is very difficult um, and we, you know, I did have previous clients who would do that opioid addiction. They would doctor shop and go to and, – and, the legislation is clear in the fact that um, around the healthcare framework, guardians will make decisions on healthcare matters when a doctor calls them for consent. So it's up to the doctor to determine whether they need to seek consent for what they're doing or they don't. 
it, it's one of those situations where this is why we rely heavily or the guardians rely heavily on the support coordinator and the, and the service provider to provide them with information that is putting the adult at risk so that they can make informed decisions around picking up the phone and saying to one of the doctors, for example, hey, public guardian is appointed for healthcare decisions for this participant. We understand that we have some concerns that the participant may be going from doctor to doctor to doctor. Are you aware of this? You know, and I guess really put it back on them because they should be having those conversations with the with the person that they're prescribing medication for or, you know, the people that are bringing, if, if there's a a support worker bringing the client to the appointment, having those conversations with the support worker. I mean, I I would never be, as if I was a doctor, prescribing hardcore painkillers for someone who I didn't have a really good historic information around, you know, if, if this is the first time I'm having a conversation with, with someone, I want to know for the last six months what doctors they've been seeing. That That is when they do rely on information from the, the family supports around, you know, how the adult is putting themselves at risk. But they are very, uh, they're, they're complex situations to try and manage. Very. Um, I don't know if I answered your question around the QCAT process either properly. So what I wanted to say about that also is that when someone applies to QCAT, the process is everyone rocks up to a hearing the member has a look at all the information. There's there's three things that the, the QCAT member has to determine before making a formal appointment. One is, has the person lost capacity to make decisions? And that's based on a conversation with the adult themselves if they're there or the medical evidence that supports whether they have lost capacity or haven't lost capacity. The next thing that the QCAT member must determine is what decisions are required. If there are no decisions required, they can't make an appointment generally, unless it's to safeguard the adult's health and wellbeing. So from that, they will determine what decisions are made and what areas are needed to decisions to be made. And then they'll make a formal appointment around who is the most appropriate. So that's sort of the three, I guess, prongs of the QCAT process is, has the person lost capacity? That's the first element. What decisions um, need to be made? Who is the best person to make those decisions? And that's similar for if we wanted public trustees put in place. And sometimes people who are applying for the adult who needs decision-making done for them. (laughs) Um, Sometimes I've seen where public trustee and public guardian get put in at the same time. Mm, mm. Um, So you as the person who's applying for the person can say, I think they need both lots of decision makers. Mm, yeah. That's yeah. Yeah. That, and that's exactly right because it, it should be a holistic. Um, if someone's lost capacity generally for day-to-day decisions like accommodation services, generally financial stuff is a lot more complex, paying bills, paying rent, all that sort of stuff. And generally, we, the, you know, there was a lot of clients uh, that PTQ have that OPG don't have because that financial element is so much more complex. So, and and generally we also found that personal decisions are easier to be revoked for a person than financial. So generally someone, if they're appointed a public trustee, will have a public trustee for a long time, um, whereas the public guardian works to, towards more of a, hey, if we, if we aren't making decisions for you, we don't need to be in your life. We're going to seek a revocation. 
And there was times at OPG that they had it, and I'm not too sure whether they still do, where they have a seek leave to withdraw, called a seek leave to withdraw guardian. And their f- sole focus is basically to have a look at people that the OPG is appointed for that they don't need to have a formal appointment for. So someone in an aged care setting where they're in a permanent aged care facility, their their health is being um, looked after by a geriatrician or someone, um, there's no need for a formal healthcare appointment because, as we said before, there's a statutory health attorney. So if there is end-of-life decisions or some other decisions around healthcare, it can be made as a statutory health attorney um, of last resort. They're in permanent accommodation and the services that are required are being required are being de- um, delivered by the nursing home. So no decisions. So therefore, to be least restrictive, once again, we would apply to QCAT and QCAT would revoke the appointment. I really like that idea. Yeah. I think it's great that there is a way to essentially get back out if that system is no longer serving you. Whereas public trustee, it's a much harder system to get back out of. It is because there's a lot of um, uh, there's a lot of evidence that you would need to put towards a QCAP member around budgeting and how uh, there's a lot more to it than there is around, I guess, making personal decisions for someone. So the NDIS, when it started in 2017, 2016? 2017. 2017, I think it was. Yeah, 2013 then. Yeah. Yeah. In Queensland, it was 2017. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Really, really changed the way that guardians did their job because previous to that, you could be revoked for everything if you, you know, if the adult was well looked after and set up in a safe and secure accommodation, there was always a chance to be revoked. But when the NDIS hit, there's always going to be decisions that are needed when someone gets a new NDIS plan. So generally, the caseloads of guardians just continued to go up. We weren't seeing many revocations. So yeah, and the NDIS changed the way that, I mean, I think it was needed, It, you know, I think the NDIS is amazing. But, yeah, so that changed the way that, I guess, guardians worked. So what qualification does a public guardian need to have? It's a very good question, Hannah. Um, you don't actually need a qualification. Um, so as I said, I came out of the maritime industry. Um, it's on the job training. There is a lot of training that is provided, a lot of support that is provided by the OPG to be able to do the job policies, procedures. Um, you don't actually start as a guardian with delegation. Delegation is something that you have to work towards getting by being supported and making decisions. So there's a full framework around getting delegation and the things that you have to do before you be able to make decisions on your own. But no, no qualifications required. Um, Obviously, a lot of guardians do have qualifications, law degrees. um, There's a lot of um, people that have bachelor degrees in um, uh, psychology, um, bachelors of criminology and criminal justice. So yeah, but there's no formal qualification required to be a guardian. Comments. (laughs) (laughs) Comments. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Qualifications are reco- are um are, are preferred, um, but yeah. I suppose no. it's like where um you see in the suitability guide with the NDIS, it's 
this kind of qualification or equivalent. Yeah, yeah. And it's sort of up to determination mm. for, from each organisation to go, mm. well, what's the equivalent look like? Yeah, and I guess, you know, from a restrictive practices point of view as well, you are, as a RP guardian, we were reviewing plans um, written by psychologists and you know but I think it's important to note that the 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 position of a guardian falls underneath the government AO stream so an admin officer stream so yeah no formal qualifications required. Roughly how many delegates are there at OPG? Um, so OPG has offices in Townsville in Cairns. They've got an Ipswich office. Um, there's also uh, their office in the state law building. So in each team, I think that it, it changes because, you know, obviously Townsville and Cairns are smaller areas. I don't have a number off the top of my head, but I think that in Ipswich, there's around 10 to 11 guardians in that office. State law, I could probably count. There's probably 50 guardians, maybe more in that office. Yeah. That's so yeah. Yeah. We, over the course of last year, we had several conversations with different uh, guests around KPIs, times, caseloads, mm. what the work looks like, downtime. Because yeah. we know that working with people with a disability in complex situations can be very stressful and there can be lots to unpack and to try and work through. Mm. And guardians have a very key responsibility within mm. that. But that can take a toll on the guardians as well. Absolutely. So I remember when I was young and when I was in my position as a guardian, I was friends with someone in Victoria that was a guardian as well or worked within that that framework. Mm. And they were saying that the caseloads can be anywhere up to 80, 120 people depending on the complexity levels and Correct. stuff like that. Yeah. Was was that sort of like what your experience was? Yeah, so caseload management is a really is a really complex thing for the management to try and figure out. So in guardianship, there's um, you've got your senior guardians. Sorry, I'll start from the bottom. So you've got your guardians. Um, guardians generally are holding the not as complex matters, not ongoing decisions required. Some of those um, files that we were talking about before about, you know, potentially seek leave to withdraw files, all that sort of stuff. Their coast loads were anywhere from 80 to 100 clients. Then you've got your senior guardians, which um, which manage do manage complex matters, absolutely complex matters. Their caseloads run from anywhere from 45 to 50 clients. And um, then you've got your principal guardian files. So principal guardians run anywhere from 25 to 30 sort of really complex matters. Um, they also hold uh, clients that are subject to... Um, containment and seclusion, restrictive practices, um, as well as, you know, those senior guardians will also hold interim orders, like I was saying before, the three-month orders um, where decisions are required fast and um, to safeguard someone. So, yeah, their caseloads are massive. They really are. And I guess that's what I want to make sure that everyone actually realises is that the workload of the people that work in that office is incredible and they are, you know, regardless of people's views on the outside world of, of, of guardians, um, 
they're amazing people. They are doing their absolute best to do what they can for their clients. And, you know, it, 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 it's a very high burnout position to hold, lots of vicarious trauma. And OPG does their very best to support the guardians with the burnout and, you know, the debriefing and supervision and all that sort of stuff to try and have conversations because it is, it is, it can be very, very energy depleting work. So yeah, their caseloads are massive. They really are. So I guess, you know, if I can get anything out today, it's just to be kind. They're, they're doing their absolute best and they're, I guess they're, they're confined by the policies and procedures that are put in place in a government setting. So, yeah. That government setting doesn't always allow for freedom and autonomy. No, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. But they're doing the best that they can. Yeah. There's definitely there's definitely a lot of really good people within the organisation that try yeah. and do that best. But yeah, yeah, absolutely. The, absolutely. The framework and how everything is set. Yeah. And create barriers as well. Yep. To, which need, some need yeah. to be there, of course. There's Absolutely. Sort of certain places that mm. those barriers, you need to have those control mechanisms in place or the oversight. But at the same time, it's when you're sort of looking at it from the outside and you're just going, oh, I really wish I could do this, but you're going, no, I can't because I need to run this up the food chain yeah. or yeah. I need to get this very special approval or get this form filled in. Yeah, yeah, no, that's exactly right. There is a lot of checks and balances that have to be done um, by management you know, around safeguarding the clients. And, you know, there's also the Privacy Act as well that, you know, everything that they do has to adhere to those standards as well. So, yeah, it's not an easy job. It's not an easy job. Mm. Now, um, I know a lot of providers work with um, OPG Mm -hmm. and I know that from our sector we need to have service agreements signed. Mm. But... OPG don't necessarily like signing on the dotted line. No, they don't. They don't sign service agreements. Um, but what they will do is they will provide an email of consent. Um, so generally, and I'll speak from my experience, when I was contacted by a support coordinator or a service provider who um, had a service agreement that needed um, consenting to, my first thing would be I would send it to the support coordinator and seek confirmation from the support coordinator that the service agreement aligns with the person's plan, um, there's funding available and it also aligns with the goals. That's a really important part of it. So I would also ensure that the person, the, the client, the participant had been spoken to, hey, what do you think about this service? Is this something that you're happy to do? If no, then I would politely decline and say I'm really sorry, but you know we're not we're not moving forward with this. Generally, if someone's drafting a service agreement, those conversations have already happened though. So once I got that information from the support coordinator to say the funding is available, it aligns with the person's views, wishes, and preferences, and aligns with their goals, we had a sort of a pro forma email that we would amend and and provide consent via email. Just with that email back or the confirmation from the support coordinator, Hmm. are you wanting it that simple or are you needing more specific? No, it's literally (laughs) that simple. It's literally, hey, does the client know that this is happening? Can you tell me whether there's funding in the current NDIS plan to support the service agreement? Does it align with their goals? If those, if that's all yes, then... And I would put it in like one sentence. Okay. Yeah, yeah, exactly. The, the simpler and the quicker, the better.
<laughs> so a lot of the support coordinators, and I think, Hannah, you were one of them, um, that I worked with, I'd be like, they knew. They, they, so they would know when they sent me a service agreement for consent, if that was in there, the consent would just go, would would be provided. And it's generally a, a fairly quick turnaround. I mean, I know that some, some guardians do take a little bit longer to do those um, service agreement consents, depending on what else they've got going on. But generally, if you get the information in the email to make a decision, you would make the decision and and make sure that all the record keeping and everything was done um, at that time as well. I did have, I'll tell you a funny story um, about looking through a service agreement for um, an OPG is one day I looked through and I realised there was a clause right at the end that said, by signing this, you consent for the service provider to have a copy of the plan, which the OPG never does. Mm -hmm. No one's allowed to have a copy of the plan except the support coordinator. And so I sent this to the OPG and I said, oh, by the way, they've got this weird clause and I know you won't consent to it, so I just wanted to let you know. And they sent an email back going, well, that's odd because we've used this provider heaps of times and no support coordinator has <laughs> ever seen this before. Yeah. And I just was like, yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> I'm pretty thorough and here it is. And so the OPG said, oh, can you ask them to take it out? And I had a lot of backwards and forwards and ended up getting them to talk directly with the OPG as well because they were not letting that clause go. Yeah, and wow. it was one of the funniest things of the OPG just being shocked that no other support coordinator had picked it up. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, I mean, and that's what I was saying to you before. We rely, you know, sorry, I keep saying we, but (laughs) I was there for a long time. Um, OPG rely heavily on support coordinators to know what's going on and and to provide the the information that they need to be able to make decisions. So, but that is that is a funny story. And you know, I'm I'm I was sort of of the view that um, I don't think that service providers should have the whole plan, but they should have some of it. So the goals, so they can work with the participant around the goals. They should also have the information around maybe not the dollar the dollar figures but the information around the stuff that pertains to their support of the client so if they're doing community access what that part of that plan looks like or or whatever so you know I was always open to providing certain elements of the NDIS plan but not the NDIS plan as a whole because there's a lot of information in there that particularly that about me sort of stuff as well sometimes you know that's got personal information in it that not everyone should have you know, so yeah, yeah. I was always open to some sections of the NDIS plan being shared, but not all of it. Yeah. Yeah. When I first started as a support coordinator, plans were able to be plan managed still. And then a few years went on and they suddenly changed their mind and said, no, everything has to be NDIA managed and all the providers have to be registered providers. Hmm. How did that affect your job? It didn't really affect affect it that much, to be honest. Um, the that was a decision that was made at a management level due to some certain situations that a client or some clients were put at risk by having non registered providers in place. However, my personal view is the NDIS, the structure that the NDIS is built on, is choice and control. So. 
if someone and and a lot I know a lot of those sort of art therapies, music therapies, all that sort of support, they're not NDIS registered. So I think that after a lot of discussion um, and back and forth, and look, OPG also do something very well in that they will always go to their guardians mm. and say, hey, guys, we're doing a focus group on this. Can you guys provide a view on your day-to-day sort of stuff about, you know, what you're seeing in the sector? So they're very good at getting that collaboration internally from the people that are doing the job. So I my view is that it should be up to the participant to decide which services they want to use, whether they're NDIS registered or not. Um, and I know that there's a lot more, a bit, sorry, a, a bit more of a turnaround now back into plan management rather than NDIS registered businesses to give that choice and control and that freedom back. Um, I think that I'm fairly sure, don't quote me, I'm fairly sure that um, NDIS registered support coordinators across the board, that's what the NDI, the OPG will use. SIL providers, I'm not sure. Um, CAS providers, some of them will be plan managed, not NDI, sorry, um, not NDIS registered. A lot of Indigenous clients um, also, their CAS providers or their SIL providers are not NDIS registered for whatever reason. So it's a case-by-case basis, basically. Sorry, does that make sense? As it sense? should be. Okay, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. I've seen a lot more flexibility in yeah. that space recently because I was yeah. looking at a few, yeah. uh, talking with a few people that were... Um, manage oh, being cared. What's the word? <laughs> um, I was having. I have been working with a few people that are with the with under guardian. Yeah. And there seems to be a lot more flexibility yeah. around whether or not it's registered, a registered provider or non-registered provider, yeah. which definitely helps with maintain that choice and control and flexibility. Absolutely, absolutely. Oh, and I also think that you know if you're looking at it from a invoicing side of things, when you've got a plan manager in place, they're looking at the invoices, right? They're actually checking to make sure that the services that are being delivered are appropriate, they're in line with the plan generally. Yeah. Um, whereas NDIA managed, they just pay the pay the bill. Yeah. So I think that there's a lot more oversight when someone is plan managed, yes. right? Because you've got someone who's actually checking invoices. I just want to go back to the process of applying for OPG. Mm. Um, Now, we've talked about how support coordinators are integral to once someone has OPG because we have an overview of how someone's going and their vulnerability and risk and what the service provision. But when it comes to... Actually putting OPG in place, I've always been of the opinion that that is not a support coordinator's place and hopefully shouldn't be put on a support coordinator to put OPG in place. So how do you see that working? So as I as I said before, anyone can make an application to QCAT. Generally, if there is no one else, the public guardian can also make an application to QCAT to have a guardian appointed because at the end of the day, QCAT is determining the appropriateness of the public guardian or a family member or anyone else. So generally, if the the adult has a service or support agency in place, they would be the ones because they have the day-to-day information about 
uh, about the requirement of a, or a need for a guardian and what decisions are required and that sort of thing. A lot of the time hospitals will do or a GP will make an application because you've got to get that medical report around capacity as well. So um, QCAT see a lot of applications coming from hospital social workers. Some support coordinators will, will put in application to QCAT, but generally my view is that whoever has the most information about the client that supports the application would be the one to put in the application to QCAT. So, for example, if Blue Iris was um, was noticing that, hey, we need to move this person for whatever reason or they've got some really complex health concerns that we're worried about that may not be suitable to be managed under the statutory health attorney regime, we need to formally appoint, we need to have a guardian formally appointed, whether that's mum, sister, brother, OPG or whoever, Blue Iris would put in an application for a guardian to be appointed. So generally it's the person who has the most information about the requirements of why a guardian is needed will put in that application. Sometimes uh, you can do a joint application with the support coordinator and the service agency if you want to, but it's definitely not something I think that OPG looks at, oh, if there's a support coordinator, they can just do it. Do you know what I mean? I think that it's not really in a support coordinator's scope and we usually have such a small amount of funding that the time is better spent on everything else. On linking a participant with providers in their plan, yeah. Yeah. I guess it would also depend on what part of the process the support coordinator is engaged and who's engaged the support coordinator as well. So if you've got a participant who doesn't have any in-home supports or and they just have a support coordinator for whatever reason, it, it depends. So if you're the only one with the information I agree it's not in the scope of a, a, um, a support coordinator to put in an application, but if you're the only one mm. that has the information to safeguard the client, do yeah, you know what I mean? I guess mean? I would like, often try to get a disability advocate. Yes, absolutely. Um, yep. In to try and do that or even look at getting a social worker who can then yep. put together all the different bits and pieces because it it can be a lot of work in terms of just gathering the information Absolutely. together yeah. mm-hmm. and I think that is often better done by a social worker. Yeah, I completely agree with you and they if have possible. Yeah, and look there that you're right with with the amount of funding that support coordination gets there is a lot of running around um, and collating of information that's required for those applications. So advocacy service, absolutely. Um, And if there is a social worker from a hospital setting involved, then yes, case manager from mental health can also assist. Um, Yeah. After you've moved into the disability sector within your current role, Mm. how have you kind of sort of seen the the, the difference? Oh, look, I... I think, look, there are just so many good people in our industry and what I think I've really learned is that OPG is such a small part of a huge sector, a huge sector where, yes, you're going to get dodgy providers and you're going to get people who aren't in it for the right reasons, they're there to make the dollars and all that sort of stuff, but generally most people that I have come into contact with are good people who just want the best for their participants. So I think, you know, and and sitting in an office making decisions for people, 
you know, you, you do form an opinion of certain providers depending on what the information is that you're receiving from the community and the participant and all that sort of stuff. So you do, I did have a view of, of providers that probably wasn't accurate because I'm not out there, I'm not visiting people, I'm not meeting people, you know, I'm sitting in an office making decisions, whereas coming out of that space into this massive sector of amazing people and, you know, people that are in it for the right reasons and people that really want to make a difference. So my view has changed on a lot. I think my view of the sector has grown so much over the last 10 months, I think it's been since I've been out. So, yeah. Yeah, it's – I love it. I love it. It's so nice. It's so nice. And it's really nice to see actual really positive outcomes for the people that you're providing support to. Yeah, it, it's the positive outcomes for me and, and seeing the smiles on our clients' faces and it's just – it's been really nice. So your, part of your role is compliance and management and this is a big thing for me. I love this work, compliance oh. well. Did – how did you find the, the skills and knowledge and the training that you received as part of your time as, uh, within the Guardian space? Did, how did that sort of impact and help you within the comp- moving into NDI's compliance? I guess, I guess from a restrictive practices point of view, and I can speak from, from RP, the amount of plans that I read and provided consent to for the use of RP really helped with that compliance thing, understanding the RP and legislation around not only what's happening under the NDIS Act but in the Disability Services Act and the Guardianship and Administration Act. Having that knowledge really helped with compliance. I have our support managers coming to me all the time saying, hey, is this RP? Hey, is what the staff done? Do we need to report this? You know, so I guess... OPG gave me that knowledge. What it would also give you is an understanding of the short-term... Short-term approval? Approval. Approval process. Sh- yeah. I knew it was STA and I was yeah, like, yeah, yeah, what yeah. does it stand for? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Short-term yeah. approval yeah. when you've used an RP mm. because there was a situation, someone used an RP either accidentally or not realising it's a restrictive practice. Mm, the mm. manager has realised it's a restrictive practice. So you apply, you send into, is it usually op, at OP? No. no. So with the short-term approval, so if someone, so for example, if someone, if one of our still participants who wasn't subject to restrictive practices got whole, was having, um, you know, a, a uncomfortable morning or whatever and got hands on a knife and was threatening to hurt themselves and the staff removed that from them in that instance, they would put it in the incident report, it would go to their support manager, their support manager would contact me and say, hey, this is what's happened. I would report that as an unauthorised use of restrictive practices given that we removed it. Just from that I would not make a short-term approval. If it was a continuous, if it was continuously um, occurring um, after having conversations with a behaviour clinician, medical, so it could be that, you know, the person's feeling unwell and they can't communicate. Behaviour is a form of communication. So if once we did all the checks and balances around, you know, do they have a UTI? Are they unwell? Like, you know, what's happening for that person at that particular moment that made them grab a knife and want to hurt themselves or someone else, okay? So once we've looked at that 
uh, episode or incident holistically, have we done everything that we need to do? Have we contacted the doctor? Have we spoken to the staff? Have we got a behaviour clinician on board? Is this going to be a long-term thing that we're going to actually need to restrict their access to sharps and knives and that sort of thing? At that point, that's when I would make an application for a short-term approval. Because if it's just a once-off because of whatever reason, I don't want to have someone be subject to restrictive practices unless they absolutely have to be. And that's why I wouldn't start that process until we've got more information around what's happened and, you know, is it something that the staff did? Did the staff not administer medication at the right time? Did the staff, you know, put out the blue cup instead of the green cup or, or whatever? So there's there's got to be more to it because I always think behaviour is a form of communication. But in saying that, we're always going to keep our staff, sa- staff and our clients safe. So, you know, if there is a need down the track, to apply for a short-term approval. So short-term approval applications are made to the Department of Seniors, Disability Services and Torres Strait Islander Partnerships. I call them DSD SATSIP because it's such a long acronym, like such a long name. And, um, yep, so the applications are made to there and then they review the information around, you know, what's happened, is there a need for a short-term approval they give Blue Iris the implementing provider a short-term approval for six months generally and that's when the process starts of behavioural clinician writing a plan that's that has restrictive practices in it. During that six months also we would apply to QCAT for a guardian to be appointed for as the implementing provider for restrictive practices general um, and then the process goes on from there. But it's, it's generally a last resort. We wouldn't ever want someone to be sub because we always work towards reduction elimination so we don't want anyone to be subject to restrictive practices unless there's significant behaviors of harm ongoing all right i was going to finish off the last question which is anna um in your ideal what would the ndis look like to you the ndis for me i think i want it to look like a place where people are included that people just aren't seen as a diagnosis that people have the support that they need but also that support gives them independence and free reign over their lives to 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 do things um, that they want to do and just because it doesn't fit within someone's funding model doesn't mean that they shouldn't be able to to do it um, so for me inclusion uh, people being seen for, for the person that they are rather than what their diagnosis is and, yeah, just really good support from people who care and don't try and take advantage of people. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's been really fun. Just quietly, you were always my favourite OPG. Oh. <laughs> Whenever I got you, I was like, yes, I've got oh. Anna. <laughs> thank you. That's really, that's really kind. Thank you. I did try and do my absolute best and, you know. I, I really, I really value the time that I spent there, um, and you know the connections and the people that I worked with. They're, they're just yeah, they're an amazing group of people, and they're just they're they're doing their best. They really are, yeah. Well, thank you so much, Emma, for sharing your, your knowledge and your skills and your experience that you've had. It's been an absolute pleasure having this conversation. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Huzzah. Thank you for listening. Please share with people you know. Until next time, as the Green Brothers say, don't forget to be awesome.